Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Virago Podcast, a monthly celebration of books, reading, and writing, brought to you by Virago Press, the international publisher of books by women. This is Lenny Goodings, and I'm sitting with Sarah Dunant, and we're talking about her paperback of her new book, her latest book, which is called In the Name of the Family which we originally subtitled, um, if you can subtitle a novel, a novel of Machiavelli and the Borgias. And Sarah, welcome. Thank to you. Virago Podcast. Thank you. Um, you are now what I would call the sort of Renaissance um, queen, royalty of the Renaissance in the sense that... I'm a good Republican here, but I'll <laughs> I know take you that. Are. We'll I'll take, take that on. Uh. Yeah. Okay. Top. Tops is what I mean. Um, so you've become, it seems to me, the chronicle chronicler of the Renaissance, and particularly the Italian um, cities and art and the people. and you know, I mean, I just love these novels so much. So up until this time, you've always been doing deep research, of course, but then you would sort of draw your stories, The Birth of Venus, In the Company of the Courtesan, and Sacred Hearts. They all came from inside you, ultimately. Mm. This time, you turned to the Borgias. So mm. what took you there? Well, um, you can't put your foot down in the Renaissance without certain families hitting you like a kind of, you know, like a, a wind. And uh, I suppose the two great families are the Medici and the Borgias. And indeed, the Borgias explode out of the Renaissance. The Borgias are more legend than they are facts. So when I say to you the word the Borgias, you think murder, ruthlessness, incest, corruption, lasciviousness, or whatever. Actually, what's so interesting about all of those words is they probably also describe the Italian Renaissance. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. So uh, when I came to want to write about them, I was also writing about the heart of what the Italian Renaissance is, is that it is a period where there is so much energy, where there is so much creativity, where there is so much deep corruption, particularly in the church, where there is so much beauty, where there is so much brutality and violence. So at one level, the Borgias sum it up, a corrupt pope with a warrior son who is violent and charismatic and quite mad with a syphilitic disease, a daughter who has a reputation for being uh, incestuous and lascivious herself. So you look at them and think, God, I've got to write about them. And then when you go to it, you discover that history's done you a disservice because history has taken them to be legend and created a whole lot of completely wrong popular culture about them. And when you get to study them, you find that although some of those words are true, there is a truth underneath which is both less sensational and more subtle and more interesting and uncovers some of the most fascinating characters of the period. So I was drawn by the sensation and the sense that they sum up 
the Italian Renaissance. And the deeper I got into them, the deeper I re realized I was writing a much more subtle book. And In the Name of the Family is the second part of a, a kind of epic attempt to make them fiction. I started with Blood and Beauty. I thought, yeah, I can do this. I can do the whole family in one book. And the story was so big that by the end of uh, Blood and Beauty, I thought, oh my God, I've still got 18 months to go. But so much happens in the 18 months, it's like trying to do the Second World War. So I needed another book. And In the Name of the Family is the concluding, most dramatic 18 months of the Borgia family. So I'm interested in two things on that. One is what it felt like to have the Borgias, the real Borgias, sitting on your shoulder as you make fiction of them. And also, I'd want to know, too, what you felt when you began to discover the truth, particularly around Lucrezia. Um, I think that when you do what I believe about historical fiction, and I believe it really passionately, is why get it wrong when you could get it right? Because history is both mystery but tells us a great deal about ourselves now. So by all means go in to find a good story, but if the story has some truth and fact behind it, then grow your imaginative fictional seed from the truth. And so that's what I did. So I looked at the character of the Pope, who, yes, is a corrupt man, is a brilliant corrupt church politician, but who is also larger than life, has an appetite for women, loves his family, uh, wants to create a dynasty in Italy, is both a monster but a likable monster. Now that's an interesting character to try and inhabit. Then I looked at this son who was deeply charismatic, incredibly smart, incredibly fast, incredibly ruthless, and then whose mind starts to be warped by a new syphilitic disease. Now he's a fantastic anti-hero. You put him together with his father and you have an attempt to create a political thriller, a new dynasty in Italy. And then you have a character like Lucretia, who has come down to us as a byword for evil. Oh, lascivious, she sleeps with her father and brother and she poisons people. And when you go into the history then, you realize it's gossip. It's like looking at the way tabloid journalism works. The Borgias had lots of enemies and it suited them as soon as there was a slightly dodgy story about Lucretia to wind it up into the front page of a tabloid newspaper, the equivalent. And so when you got underneath the surface of Lucretia, you were trying to construct a much more subtle young woman who is 13 when her father mm. becomes Pope, who has had a good education, who becomes a pawn in the family dynastic game, so she's married off to different people, and who very gradually, through tragedy, her second husband is murdered because her brother's jealous of him, very gradually starts to find her own power. Ah, my third marriage, and this is what in the name of the family is about, I'll leave Rome, I'll get away from this family, I love them, but they will destroy me. And she becomes the duchess of another town. Now she jumps from the fat to the fire. She goes into a family that mm. doesn't love her, that only takes her because she brings an eye-watering dowry. And during her first year there, she nearly dies in childbirth. But you watch a woman in the past quietly finding her feet. And I suppose that brings up something that I feel very powerfully about history, and it's no surprise that I am writing within Virago as my kind of banner publisher. Because history's been very interested when you bring feminism in, is to either talk about how all women were oppressed, and, you know, lots of us were oppressed for a long time, we need to bring that out, or there were some stunning women who we should celebrate because they jump out of history as unusual. 
And the real truth about who we all were in the past is more subtle. We were ourselves, we fought against oppression, some of us made it and some of us didn't, but the creativity and the way we forged our lives was really interesting. And Lucretia is a classic example of that. She has some power, but she's a pawn in the family game. And little by little, her intelligence and a little bit of cunning and a little bit of character makes her find a place in history. And the fact that it doesn't fit in with the legend, ooh, that evil woman, let's have another television series about her, mm. for me made her the greatest challenge and the greatest discovery. She was the greatest challenge for you? She was certainly the greatest challenge in terms of what history thinks you should know about a character. And because history tells you that she's the biggest vamp, the biggest villain or whatever, my job was to say, I am going to tell you more subtle, more interesting things. Oh, but my God, I've got to make them as interesting as the sensation. Mm -hmm. And to do that, I have to create a psychologically credible character and give her a journey, which anyone, man or woman, reading this book can enter and find a journey that's rich to it. I think it, what is so interesting, what you, what you have done with all the characters in this, including Machiavelli, who I'd like to talk about too, um, is you have found a psychology, each each one of them, they're very credible, for one thing. And so so someone like, um, well, let's talk about Rodrigo. I'd like to talk about him. The Pope. The Pope. You know, what I think is so interesting about him is the way you've painted him. You can tell that you, even though he's doing awful things, and he is a bastard in lots of ways, and he certainly has a lot of bastards, um, you really liked him, didn't you? Or you, you made us like him. How did you do that? I think what happens when you spend a lot of time with almost any character uh, is you do find the motivation behind them and you find in almost every character the humanity. I'm saying this with humour because when I lecture about the Borgias, which I do with pictures, the second image I always show is a picture of Rodrigo Borgia face to face with Donald Trump. I know, and same that, profile, and that aren't they? always gets a, a great laugh, but there is some truth in it because uh, some characters that jump out of history do so because they are appalling, but they also have an impact on history. Now, I happen to think Donald Trump is much more appalling than Rodrigo Borgia, and that can go public, I don't mind that being said. But they have some stuff in common, because they're both, uh, they both have a cunning intelligence, they're both big men with an appetite for life, and they both love their family. And for me, the end to Rodrigo, we'll leave Donald now on the sidelines to go his own merry way. For me, the end to Rodrigo was that he did have humanity and love that all of us could relate to, which was his family. Mm. He is besotted by his daughter and he loves his sons to such an extent that he does not always see their flaws. And I think that there is no human being on earth who doesn't understand that. And so I came into him through that, through a man who could love as well as be ruthless and hate. And in the name of the family, I'm also looking at a man who is growing old fast and has an understanding that he's losing his power. And he has a son pressing him, Who is he? willing to take over that power. Yeah. Now, that is another extremely human thing, yes. the way the older generation mm. realize that the younger generation are not only nipping at their heels, they actually have their teeth 
into their flesh mm. and it's going to end. So Rodrigo's mortality and the way he's now thinking about who he was when he was younger makes the book at one level about a meditation about the loss of power and death at the same time as you've got this younger generation tearing up the map of Italy and running campaigns and being violent and effective. So you've got youth and age and you've got fathers and sons. So you're picking up the, I mean particularly, I mean I know we called it in the name of the family but it does seem to me Obviously, that's a reference both to, to God and to a sort of mafia feel to, to um, this group. But you're also picking up the sort of relationships between the family, aren't they? I mean, they are th that's really crucial to this family, isn't it? The way they love each other, the way they compete with each other. But you know what, you just said the word there, and let's bring it out, which is the word mafia. You know, now I'm, I'm writing about the Italian Renaissance. I'm writing about a country that isn't unified till the 19th century. I'm writing about a country where the basic building blocks of power for the longest time were the loyalty of families, families who ran this little city-states. And out of those families and all of that loyalty and all of that money and all of that corruption, both in the church and the state, came wonderful art, wonderful creativity, but also just believe in your family. Just depend on your family. So it's no surprise that, you know, 500 years later, we talk about Italy and the word family and the, and the mafia emerges. So whenever you write about the past, you're, of course, also writing about the present. And family is the building block of Italian history is so rich. Uh, and, of course, family is the building block of all of our emotional lives is still so rich. It's just not most families are trying to control the world at the same time. How, um, let's talk about Machiavelli now, mm. because he was another person that you, a bit like Lucretia, let's have, that's how we say her name. Well, if you want to be English, you would say Lucretia, and mm. if you want to be Italian, you'd say Lucrezia. Okay, well, I'll go for that. <laughs> what about Nicolai? That's what I want to you to now, Machiavelli. Yeah. Yeah. So, a bit like Lucrezia. You discovered something there that we didn't know about. Really. Yes, and when you said to me earlier, gosh, weren't you slightly afraid to go into history? Mm. Uh, uh, quite early on, I, I got the Borgia family. I got them. I knew I could do it. Yeah, I was scared. They were famous. People knew about them. But what I learned was so interesting that it gave me the fodder for the fiction. I got their personalities. Machiavelli is another deal because what we now know about Machiavelli is Oh my God, Machiavelli, Niccolò Machiavelli, the prince, the man who invents Machiavellianism, you know, to be Machiavellian. Uh, just, to, just define how we now think What of, we of think about Machiavelli is that he is uh, a cunning, wily observer on how to make power work. So that he has no morality, that all he is interested in is in how power functions and how you keep power. So when we say that was a very Machiavellian we action or move or motion, somebody what has do we looked mean as to what they can achieve in order to keep and hold power and that they can be as ruthless and hated because it's better than that to be loved. So, um, so he has an entirely negative spin, mm. right? Uh, and there's a whole podcast in itself as to why that happens through history. Um, but... When you go back and you place him deep in the soil of the moment when he lived, what you realize is that he is a smart, uh, 
certainly wily, incredibly curious and interested political observer who is a diplomat from a not particularly upper draw family who earns his living in the murky world of Renaissance politics. And part of his job is to follow the Borgias and protect Florence, which is the city he comes from, from the terrible um, machinations of Cesare and the family. And once you enter him as a young man learning diplomacy on the job, what you enter is a curious, energetic, intelligent, imaginative man trying to make sense of this dreadful, corrupt world around him. And that's the Machiavelli I found. I found a 31-year-old man who just married a wife who he quite loved, but he's a bit of a player with the women. He's got a lot of energy for sex as well as intellectual business. I found him following Cesare Borgia, him having to negotiate with him, always having to be in two places at once as diplomats are. You know, if, if you're the power and I'm the diplomat, I'm talking to you, but I'm also imagining what you're saying back to me. So I watched this nimble mind moving all the way around the politics. And he almost becomes the historian in the book for yeah, me. Yeah, because he's in a way our vehicle, isn't he? He's he, making he's, sense he's of it He's who all. we meet first. Yeah. And we, and we meet him all in, we meet him in bed, don't we? Yeah, well, or he's, he's just, just come from He's just bed. getting out of bed with his wife. And, uh, uh, and, uh, and she's a lovely character because history only tells us one thing about him, that she once writes a letter to him with a new young baby saying, oh, he's so white, he looks just like you. And when I put my hand on his head, I can feel his kind of mole skin of hair. <laughs> and you think, gosh, in that one letter, mm. There's a whole character of a woman. She's not afraid of her husband called Machiavelli. Mm. She has a relationship with him. So, um, yes, you do. You meet him as a human being, as a friend, as a young diplomat trying to keep his position. And then you meet him as a thinker. Mm, I'm in a room with Cesare Borgia. What is he saying? Is he saying this? Is he saying that? How do I react? What will his next move be? So he brings a kind of narrative energy to mm. the book. In his mind... He is trying to make sense of history. And it's not a surprise that the book actually ends, and of course I didn't know this when I started writing it, with Machiavelli ten years on, the Borgias are finished, it's over, they failed, the fall is catastrophic, and I'm not going to tell you what it is because I want people to read the book. You sit with Machiavelli as he starts writing The Prince, this very famous book which we now see as an access of evil, and what you realize the book is, is his attempt to analyze what he has learned about politics in the Italian Renaissance. So what it does is to take, as all I think all good historical fiction should, it takes what we think we know about characters in the past, and it places them deep within their own moment of living, and says, go back in with them and live it through them and then make your judgments about them. Mm. Because that's how you will learn both the psychological and intellectual truth about them. And that is what I love about historical fiction. It's what I love about your historical fiction, that's for sure. Oh. That kind of veracity and that... I mean, you, it's interesting, you've used the word soil several times, and into the soil, and it does feel... What you've managed in these books, and you always have, actually, is to make us really feel our feet are... are standing on that very soil. You know, I feel like I know what the, the cities would have smelt like. I feel like I know what I would have been wearing. Mm. You know, how do you get to that sort of really visceral feel? Um, well, of course, the answer is very boring. It's a lot of work, mm. uh, except 
I don't find it a lot of work because I'm so interested in it, you know. Long before these books ever hit the page, you will have had to sit with Sarah for six months in libraries. Yes, not always boring libraries. Sometimes they're in Italy or mm. whatever. You will have had to follow me following Cesare Borgia's campaign trail in and out of Italy to see if some of the fortresses still exist. You will know that I will have thought a lot about the things that they eat. I will have imagined what it's like to live in a world where sound is not mechanised, where the dresses make more of a sound than the carts on the ground. I will have looked at what dirt does. I will have looked at what disease does. I will have studied the process of this new and terrifying disease called syphilis. So I will have sunk myself very deeply into the past. And then the only difficult bit is to put aside the research, to kind of go, you know enough now, Sarah, because there's always a voice going, I don't think you do, I don't think you do, and say, now your job is to imaginatively recreate that for the reader. And I do think a lot about the fact that the modern reader is moving very fast and there's always something to distract them. And they take for absolute granted the technology of their modernity, you know, from the phone to the television to the next thing they switch or catch. And I want to cut all of that off and sink them into something where they have to live in a different way, at a different pace, with different senses. And if I can do that, then that's the beginning by which they will grow with the characters and feel them as different. You know, I think there's a great tension within historical fiction to say, oh, I read it because they're just like us. Well, yeah, they are just like us. You know, prick us, do we not bleed? We're all human, we all have emotions. But actually, sometimes they're not like us. Sometimes the worlds they lived in are so exotic and different that they come out different. And if my imaginative workout is penetrating that, then I think the reader's imaginative workout is to enter that too. And mm. that's what's exciting about fiction, right? I know, and I was going to ask where you, you're not. Definitely. I mean, we read it to be transported, don't we? But yes. do you also think historical fiction, good historical fiction, is a, is a way to understand the past. I mean, not everybody writes good historical fiction, and sometimes if we turn to movies or we turn to lesser books, we we misread history. Oh, well, don't it's, we? you know, it's not going to be my job here to give you an incredibly long list of the bad historical mm. fiction or the bad historical films. It can be a lazy way to learn history. Because they absolutely not. are out there. What they do is they take a series of facts, they take a series of sensational stories, and then they write them as if they were modern characters. Now, for me, the great challenge is to take those same, if you like, sensational stories or those same facts and to sink you into them from a completely different perspective mm. so you understand how they behaved like that and it's not because they're just like you. So for me, there's a huge imaginative leap to be taken from going into history. No, it doesn't mean that you're not talking about the present. You know, when I wrote a book which has become very famous for me, The Birth of Venus, which was about a fundamentalist preacher in Florence in the 1490s and a young woman who wants to become an artist and believes in liberal ideas. Uh, to my surprise, while writing that book, the Taliban took over um, in Afghanistan and we saw the rise of Islamic fundamentalism. I had a perfect modern parallel to what happens when fundamentalism attacks liberalism. But that's an abstract idea. It, in order for you to appreciate that idea, 
I should be writing a non-fiction book. Mm. But if I write a really good piece of fiction where the idea is, oh my God, I've got to turn the next page, that at the end of it, you may have taken in that stuff, mm. but it will have been through a good story. So of course history always has to tell you things about the present. In the Name of the Family is a story about how you slander women within the culture they live in. How you slander Lucretia is to suggest that she's sexually lascivious and that she'll sleep with anybody, including her own father and possibly her brother. If you're not going to tell me that that doesn't tell you something about the present and the moment we're going through at the moment as to how you keep women in check or don't and slander them, which is by suggesting that it's their fault and it's their sexual appetite that caused the problems, and that our culture is very easy and happy to do that, of course I'm saying something about the present. But I'm not writing an essay about now. I'm writing an essay about what it's like to be human and female throughout history. And some things, like a kind of, I don't know, live like an electric current under the surface. Well, it's so interesting that the, the thing they go against her, I mean, the, the rumour that comes about her is a sexual one, isn't it? Absolutely, and that is the easiest way to slander women. And you're living in a society where, uh, you could say there's a double standard now, and my God, we're living through a moment when we're exposing that double standard, which is about how men use power and how women cannot use power. But in the past, I'm looking at a period where if women sleep outside of their marriages, they are whores and in some cases can be killed for it. Men sleep always outside their marriages. The unique marriage would be somebody who stays within it. Mm. And that comes from a deep belief in the character of Eve, who was the final temptress. It's about man's fear of women's mm. sexuality. Mm. So some of these ideas that I'm dealing with, deep in religion, have echoes that still absolutely exist now. You don't slough them off by Richard Dawkins writing a few books. You know, they exist very deeply within and the And do culture. you feel when you're in the middle of writing some, um, either The Birth of Venus or this one, that you, you sort of, because I know you're very heads down and, you know, you're totally locked into another, um, a period in a different country even, but do you feel when you just, when you raise your eyes up and look at the news, that you, do you feel, gosh, have we learned anything? Do we know anything? Are, are we just, are we turning it over and over on the same I, things? I certainly think that working now for nearly 20 years deep in a 15th and 16th century, that the things that I have learned about human behavior and human nature have not changed that dramatically. And I don't, I'm not just talking about gender now, I'm talking about our potentiality for violence, our insecurity, the impact and panic we have over disease or fear of certain things, uh, that although we have technologically and scientifically evolved to what we would see as an enormously sophisticated moment, that somebody pressing their button and being able to see what's going on in Pakistan or Hong Kong through their iPhone, does not really tell you much about how they still feel about how their wife or husband is behaving, what their love for their children is, what they feel when they are, feel hatred and revenge. It doesn't stop the wars. It doesn't stop the need to make money. It doesn't stop greed. That these inbuilt qualities to human nature are, as in a sense, as old as humans are, and they're evolving, if they're evolving at all infinitely.
slower. Now, you could be very pessimistic about that. And indeed, actually, I am quite pessimistic about it. Or you could say, well, what a rich history. Mm. Therefore, we can go anywhere in Mm. the past to try and forensically look at what this thing called human beings are and how they react. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Virago Books podcast. I hope you'll join us again in a month's time for our next episode for more books, readers, writers, and conversation. In the meantime, please keep in touch and tell us what you think on Twitter at Virago Books or on Facebook at Virago Press.